innovation. Lots of companies are putting lots of resources behind innovation in the products and services they offer. But what about commercialization, actually selling those new products and solutions effectively? It is not about building better mousetraps anymore. Well, during his corporate experience, our guest saw firsthand some big disconnects between product innovation and commercialization. Now, as a researcher and executive educator, he's found clear quantitative patterns between those companies and people who can sell innovations as well as they create them. It's Tom Steenberg, co-author of the new Harvard Business Review article, How to Sell New Products, on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. Here each week we discuss three foundational components for growing your business. First, your message, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want to share. Second, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share the message. And third, the management habits that will shape your culture and turn your improvements into a competitive advantage. We know it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. So let's talk about one of the most fundamentally frustrating and expensive issues for companies, selling their new stuff. One of the more notable examples in business history was at Xerox. True story. In 1979, a group of executives and engineers from Apple, including Steve Jobs, toured a research lab run by Xerox, which of course was known primarily for its office copiers. But Xerox was also testing a number of computer innovations, including this thing called a mouse. Jobs later said in an interview, quote, Xerox could have owned the entire computer industry, end quote. Our guest, Tom Steenberg, held several positions in marketing and operations at Xerox. Their research and development organization was objectively world-class. The sales organization, also world-class. And yet Tom saw up close how Xerox lost big opportunities because they could not bring those sides of the house together. Now, we aren't picking on Xerox. There are lots of other big company examples from the past, like Kodak, and many more organizations today, large and small who have new products, services, and ideas for their markets, but are struggling with how to sell them. Tom's corporate experience has driven his research and executive education focus today in his role as the Richard S. Reynolds Professor of Business Administration at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. He's written popular case studies about companies such as HubSpot and EMC, and won acclaim for another Harvard Business Review article, Motivating Salespeople, What Really Works. His most recent article for HBR, co-authored with Michael Ahern, is the one that we'll talk about the most today. It's titled, How to Sell New Products. Tom, welcome to the Manager Message Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, pleasure to have you here. I was reminded again about your research in that HBR article. is just a few days ago. So here was the scene. About a dozen participants in a workshop. The client is a big technology firm. Now, our goal was to start developing some messaging to help sell a very strategically important new solution, really a new business unit. About half of the room came from the product side and half from sales. 
we weren't very far into the first day of the workshop when something became quite obvious. The sales teams had been presented this new thing to talk about, yet they weren't clear about what the solution involves, what are the key business challenges that the solution is supposed to address, or how to orchestrate what will be a very long sales cycle and will involve many different influencers at the customer. Tom, does any of this sound familiar to you? All of it sounds familiar. I think it's probably the most common story when we talk about commercialization, where really the product team and the sales team don't talk much before launch. The article, I think, combined more than one piece of research, but I know part of it is you surveyed around 500 salespeople across several different industries to see how they were spending their time and what was and wasn't working for them. And one of the overarching takeaways for me is that successfully selling something that's new and innovative is not about making a few small tactical changes. It really seems to be a different animal from selling existing or familiar products. Yeah, that's really what we were interested in understanding better in this research is like what's different about a new product sale and how do the best companies go about selling new products? What do they do differently from other companies in making that happen? And I can give you some statistics around this just to sort of set us up for the discussion. As you may know, most new product launches fail when they hit the marketplace. It's something like 80% of new products launches fail. And when we think about like returns on investment, as you look across the best companies within industry and the worst companies within industry, huge changes in terms of the returns they get on their investment. So if you look in consumer technologies, if you look in automotives, if you look in consumer packaged goods, if you look at telecommunications, the difference in returns from the best performing companies and the worst performing companies, it's about 12x. And if you look at the returns between an average or median company and the best companies, it's about 6x. So there is something very different about what the best companies are doing in selling new products and what the worst companies are doing in selling new products. And we were interested in our research to sort of understand that dis- difference. What's the best practices in terms of how people are approaching this different type of sale? So let's break it down a bit. I tend to think fairly simply about some of the growth challenges that companies have into their message, kind of where they're saying how they're positioning their value proposition and the messengers, in this case, going to be the sales people and their managers, and then what to do, what are the habits and how people in the sales team, if they're getting what they need in terms of training and reinforcement and coaching. So maybe we can break it down a bit that way. And if we begin with messengers, the sales team, one of the things that struck me is you said, those salespeople who are selling new products have to be ready to not only spend more time with customers, but also more of that time in face-to-face meetings than may have been the case before or what they would expect. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So there's a huge difference in a new product sale versus an existing product sale in terms of what's going on at the customer site. And we can break that down across the stages of the sales cycle and talk a bit more about that in detail. But on the whole, what happens with new product sales is that it's going to require between 30 and 40% more time in terms of face-to-face meetings. Most of those meetings are going to be with more cross-functional teams. So instead of meeting with just like, let's say, the purchasing organization or a small set of engineers, 
I'm going to meet with a wider set of engineers. I'm going to meet with the purchasing organization. I'm going to meet with users of the product. I'm going to meet with senior management because they're going to have to buy off in this new technology. And on the whole, new products require a lot more change at the customer side. And so what that means is it brings up a whole different sets of emotions around new products than you get around existing products that's driving this incremental sales cost. Perhaps a better way of putting it would be incremental investment of time in the sales process. So there are a couple of things that I thought were important that came out from what you just said. So meeting with cross-functional teams, everything's just more complicated and drawn out. And there are more people involved with the buyer. And what I'll often see, Tom, is that the sales reps and their managers, they have to start understanding new types of roles, personas at the buying organization and how to, as you say, navigate the political structure, the power structure, the influence structure that's there. So where does that tend to put a strain on how sales reps are allocating their time and just how the whole organization is equipped to help them navigate a brave new world. I think the brave new world phrase that you just used is key. One of the fundamental differences between new products and existing products is that new product brings change. And what that means is as a salesperson that you have to become a change agent. You have to become a person who can help the client manage change. And this is difficult. It's not a role that a lot of salespeople are used to playing. And here's the worst part of the story in terms of the life of a salesperson. If you think about how a buyer reacts to new products, early in the sales process, they're extremely excited. In fact, the sales rep is extremely excited about this new product because it gives them a new message to bring to the client. You know, you work with clients, you develop relationships over long periods of time, and then a new product is often a time when you can say to yourself, geez, I've got something new to say. I have some new information to bring to the client. The client looks at that, the customer looks at that and says, wow, this is fantastic. I finally have something new to talk about. I want to learn more. And in fact, I want to learn about best practice in the industry. So I'm very excited about taking this call. And so what this drives is right after a product launch, the salesperson actually wants to get out there and feels like they're having a lot of new and productive conversations. But then as the sale progresses and you start the reality of adopting this product comes into focus, and the reality of the, of the change at the buying organization, they start to realize that change is going to happen, the sales starts to turn. And so what happens at this point is that you had talked about how other people in the buying organization get involved. This is the point deep into the sale where others start to get brought into the conversation. And this brings up a whole different set of issues at the client side. They start saying, well, what's gonna to happen to me if our company adopts this product what happens to my role? What am I going to have to do differently? What happens to my power in the organization? Does it go up or does it go down? And so now you're deep into a sales cycle that you've been feeling good about. And suddenly you're having to bring in new people into the process. New issues are being brought up. New objections are being made. And the sales starts to slow down. And a lot of reps at this point start to ask themselves, oh, my God, this product that I thought was great suddenly doesn't feel so good. What am I going to do now? and they start to lose faith in the product launch. I had this thought about often there's an R&D team, a product development team that has been putting these innovations together, and then they're going to refine this thing and get it performing really well. They've gone through testing, and it's ready to go to the sales team. 
maybe introduced at a general sales kickoff or maybe through some schedule of communication to the sales team. So this is a whole cycle here. What do you see is the typical way that that happens? And is there a difference in the way that successful new product sellers approach that, how the sales team is educated and informed about the new product and the involvement on the research side? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. So what typically happens when a new product is launched is that the company puts down a great showcase about the product. And most of the training that's given is all about the features and perhaps some customer benefits of the product. And that's about it. They don't really think about how this product is going to change the lives of the people at the buying organization. It's very product centric. And when we've gone out and sort of talked about this practice in the industry, one of the questions that I'll often ask groups is, how long does your product development team stay on with a product post-launch? So after you have this product showcase, how much time is then spent by the product team getting a better understanding of how the sales process is evolving? And I'd say the median answer to that question is zero months. So the most companies, as soon as the product launches, what happens is the product development team rolls off and starts working on another product. So they never get that customer feedback and they never help the sales team refine the message around how to sell the product. And sales is left off on its own. In fact, the longest companies that we talk to, typically on the high end, it might be a couple of months post-launch that the product development team is staying around and helping the sales team craft the message. So the type of message that the salespeople are left with from the marketing folks and from product development folks is typically are very product centric. And Tom, is that due to limited resources from the subject matter experts, the product experts in their capacity to be involved in the selling process? Or is it maybe a sense of there hasn't been enough targeting or prioritization in terms of who are the best candidates to have those early conversations or some other factors that you've seen? Yeah, I think it's just lack of attention more than anything else. And maybe functional boundaries play into that as well. Sort of like the feeling like we've done our job, the sales team will figure out what needs to happen at the customer site. And it's really interesting. One of the stats or research that we came across, I think this was in a McKinsey study that really stuck with me was the change post-launch in feeling about the company's own internal processes, their ability to execute. And basically what the study showed was that when companies are working with beta customers, so prior to asking for cash for the new product, they feel pretty confident actually that the new product is going to be a success and they feel pretty confident in the capabilities of the organization. But once you move into rollout phase and you're going to actually get this product in the field, that confidence really evaporates. And so I think some of it may just be, I don't want to deal with the bad news. So I'll let that other organization deal with the bad news. You know, like I don't know how to process it. I just think it's sort of fascinating in the sense that companies know that this issue exists, but if you think of the attention that's put on it, it never seems to get the attention. And it's interesting because in the product development and testing process, there's a lot of attention paid to you know, beta testing, pilot programs, and the like, making sure that you've worked out the kinks. And yet, from your article, from your research, I don't see evidence that companies tend to do that on the sales side. It's kind of, once the product is ready, off we go, right? 
Yeah, in fact, most companies, again, this is another question that I'll ask in lots of forums. I'll ask, do you have a different sales process for new products than you do for existing products? And most companies will say no. I mean, the vast majority of companies will say no. And yet we know that when a new product's adopted, it is going to bring all sorts of change at the buying organization, and it's going to raise a whole bunch of different issues. So why aren't we thinking about redesigning the sales process? Why aren't we thinking about doing something that's different to help the salespeople manage this transition? It's fascinating. As you were talking before about selling new products is going to involve a lot more stress, frankly, on the buyer and more people involved and more anxiety on their part. So I guess you see a familiar pattern. If companies are following the same process for trying to sell new products as they do with their existing portfolio, then they launch this thing. People have been you know, catapulted out of the gate after the sales meeting, and they've got this new thing to talk about. I imagine the sales teams are pretty proactive about trying to set meetings. Potential buyers are happy to take meetings because they want to hear about new things that are going on in the marketplace. And then it can get really frustrating because there are not a lot of follow-up meetings or those meetings have been with the wrong people that don't have buying influence or don't really have an inclination to want to take it further. So it sounds a bit like if that's the pattern, then the process should not be centered on the same sorts of activities that we might have for existing products like numbers of calls or numbers of meetings, but really about qualitatively something that's a little bit different. That's exactly right. And so if you think of the challenge where a buyer is really interested in spending time with you early on, but they may only be window shopping, then you need to adopt a different sales process to manage that buyer. For one, you should be much more selective in your targeting of the type of customers that you talk with. In fact, you should talk to a smaller set of customers instead of a big base. And the types of questions that you should ask yourself before you approach customers are very different. So one of the things that we found in our research when we studied differences in the behavior of an average salesperson and an outstanding salesperson is that they focused on very different things. So an average salesperson, when they thought about barriers to success, like what's gonna prevent a sale from going through, is very product centric. So they would say, the reason that I'm not gonna be able to make a sale is because I don't have the right product information and I don't know how to talk to a customer about it. That was their biggest concern. And so they mostly spent their time trying to learn about the product. Successful salespeople or stars, and by star, I mean somebody who's really great at selling new products, not just great at selling, ask fundamentally different questions. They'd ask questions around, well, will this buyer actually be able to make the change? Are they someone that's open to the possibility of changing their business practices? Will they have the right evaluation criteria later in the sale? Will they be able to put the resources into making the change? And so their focus was much more on the customer site and the types of behavior changes that you're going to have to have at the customer than it was about the product. And so they saw the challenges much different. If you think of this, where these types of questions came up, basically the star salespeople were anticipating problems that would occur deep in the sales process. And if they found customers that really would raise these objections later on, they'd avoid them. And they'd go and look for customers that would be open to adopting change later in the process. That's interesting, Tom. I think as we 
shift focus a bit from process to the individual salespeople and managers, there's some different ways that we can offer some guidance here and the insights that you got from your research. Let's talk a little bit about evaluation of your teams, and then we can talk a bit as well about training and individual coaching. So when you were talking about what the best professionals do in terms of selling new products, I wonder how much of what you see is innate in terms of kind of evaluating your existing sales team or people that you might bring in. So how much of those characteristics is innate versus how much can be taught and fed into the system? So my personal perspective in general is that a lot can be taught. In fact, there was a meta study that was done by meta study. What I mean is there's a study of many studies that looked at what drives sales success and about two thirds, let's say, of success in selling has to do with things that are malleable. And about only a third had to do with things that are more fixed. I won't say fixed, but just more fixed. So I personally believe the data suggests that there's a lot that you can teach. And there's some great case studies about that in companies that have helped people manage change. And in particular here, what I was really surprised about, even knowing what I've just said, really surprised about in my research, was that just how much of success in this particular process has to do with the management team's ability to help the rep cope with change. And there's some really interesting findings that we could talk about in terms of how customers see the salesperson versus how the salesperson sees themselves and the types of reps that can succeed, also the types of reps that can succeed in selling new products versus those who kind of struggle. Maybe this is part of how you equip reps to be most successful in what is a more stressful situation for them as well as for the customer is to get away from very product feature function based tools and communication tools, but give them some more business knowledge, give them some more ways to prioritize, but give some tools to be able to go to a whiteboard, for example, and, and communicate the case for change that way. Is that what you're talking about in terms of tools and also perhaps a sense of patience on the part of management in what is going to be required to do things differently? Let me start by talking about what drives successful salespeople or what traits of salespeople are correlated with success in selling new products. And then what the gap is between how a rep sees themselves and how a customer sees them, because that can give us some insight into how we can help support reps. So there are lots of factors that drive new product success. So one is that the salesperson has product knowledge. We might expect that. Another is that they understand how the market's changing. A third is adaptability. A fourth is long-term focus. A fifth is a learning mindset as opposed to a performance mindset. What's interesting about those traits of salespeople, and I think all of those traits are malleable or things that we can help affect is that the only one in which the customer and the salespeople are aligned is that the customer and the salespeople both think that salespeople, when it comes to selling new products, have great product knowledge. So we did a study with five companies. We've actually done it with more companies, but there were five that we talked about in the HBR article. And we asked the rep and we asked the buyer to rate the rep on those dimensions that I just talked about. And then we looked at saying, well, where's the rep's view of themselves and where's the buyer's view of the rep matching up? 
when it came to product knowledge, both the rep and the buyer saw them as having great product knowledge. It's not all that surprising, given that the companies typically train on product knowledge, right? When we looked at all of the other traits, and in particular, when it came down to adaptability of the salesperson, is the rep someone who's willing to listen to me and adapt to changing markets? The reps thought they were doing a great job on adaptability, and the buyers thought, no, this is somebody that's really stuck in their ways. So what's interesting in this is that the types of training that we give is very product-centric. It works. But when it comes to these other factors that actually predict success in new product selling, companies don't do much. And there's a big gap between what a buyer perceives the rep as being and how the rep perceives himself. So it suggests that companies have some work to do on those particular dimensions. And let me talk a bit more about a learning mindset versus a fixed mindset. This part of the research was fascinating to me. Reps with a learning mindset outperform those with a fixed mindset when it comes to selling new products. But the way that their performance changed over time was very different. So if you look at reps with a fixed mindset or reps with have a more performance-based mindset, people who need to make their numbers every month to feel good about themselves, those types of reps early on suffered a much lower dip in performance. So both types of reps after post-launch, their overall performance goes down a little bit. And that makes sense because this is a very complicated sale. I have to spend more time to get it done. So what should happen if I'm spending more of that time? My performance goes down. So reps with both mindsets, their performance drops. But in that early period, if I have a performance-based mindset, my drop is more shallow. And if I have a learning-based mindset, my drop is deeper, right? You might ask, well, why is that? Because early on what's happening is that reps with an early mindset are really investing in learning all the intricacies that are going on at the customer site. So they're spending a lot more time with the customer, learning their processes, learning how change is going to happen at the customer site. And that means that extra time that they spend learning, it means that they're spending less time with other clients selling existing products. So they have a much deeper trough. And then when you look at how that plays out in the long run, though, the reps with a learning mindset, not only does their performance recover in the long run, it supersedes where it had been before. So that time that they spend learning at the site pays off on average. The reps with a fixed mindset, what happens is their performance basically returns to where it had been before. And so they didn't spend as much time learning early on, so their performance didn't suffer. But then in the long run, they never get that payoff because they don't understand the problems at the customer site as much. So that behavior, the need to learn for this type of product sale to take place, in the short run, it's very costly. But in the long run, it pays off. And the reps that do invest in that learning process seem to do better on average in the long run than those that don't. That would seem to have a lot of implications, too, in terms of compensation models and just the overall patience on behalf of management at the seller, because you can either take that finding that you uncovered and you can make it worse or you can make it better, right? So if you've got punishments from not making your near-term numbers, then you're not going to encourage the right kinds of behavior or having the right people involved in selling the new products. And conversely, if you structure compensation and other incentives and recognition around those sorts of long-term or at least longer-term learning activities, then that would seem to make everything better. But do the processes for terms of reward and compensation 
tend to follow the, <laughs> the findings that you had? I think when it comes to compensation in general, I'd say no. It's always been a puzzle to me why people with long-term focus, like strategic account managers, compensated mostly like everybody else on an annual basis, when in fact, maybe they should be compensated for the long run. In general, companies don't change their comp plan perhaps as much as they should when it comes to selling new products. But I think there are some structures that get put in place at companies that do foster a more long-term focus. You know, I think this is easier if you're a private company than a public company who has to make your quarterly numbers. But even for public companies, we see some structures that they put in place that are quite effective. So going back to strategic account managers, we did another study with publicly traded companies. And basically we looked at, you know, where a company's willing to give parts of their sales organization long-term focus. It turns out that strategic accounts is one place where they are willing to do that. And so this has less to do with compensation and more to do with resource allocation. But our study showed that in companies in times when they're having trouble making their quarterly numbers, they did not pull resources away from strategic accounts, but they did pull resources away from your typical frontline salespeople. And so what that suggested is that companies can use their strategic accounts to manage the innovation pipeline because it has this more longer term type of focus to it. So that's one part of a structural feature, let's say, of big companies that allows them to create long-term focus and manage this innovation pipeline. Let's translate that down. There's one other topic I'd love for us to touch upon, and that is on the coaching side. And I think about frontline sales managers and meeting with and trying to guide the behaviors of the reps that report to them. So, you know, oftentimes I see where those frontline sales managers, it's very activity-based, as you talked about, you call it performance-based, I think. And so, you know, let's make sure we're making number of calls, number of demos, being busy versus focusing on the specific behaviors, reinforcement, modeling out some of that behavior across the teams. What are the pressures that all of this put on or the implications as well for one-to-one and one-to-team coaching there at the street level for reps? Yeah, I think there's lots of implications for coaching within this. And for me personally, I think one of the things that surprised me about the research is how much of a psychologist I had to be to understand what was going on. So if you think about coaching behaviors that take place, on its face, you'd say the rep has been giving a lot of what they need to make the sale because they have the product now, let's say, so why wouldn't they be able to figure out the right story or the right message to give to customers? And reps have pretty thick skin. You know, the salespeople I've known over the years have had pretty thick skin, can hear and know quite easily. So they should just be willing to go out and figure out on their own. And what we found in the research when we talked to the reps and we did a lot of our one-on-one interviews is that they felt very uncertain about the success of the product and felt uncomfortable often giving pitches. So one manager that we talked to about this said basically his reps just did not want to look stupid in front of a customer. They have long-term relationships and this was in a fastly changing digital market. And what he found was his reps had all the product knowledge that they needed and they actually understood the market reasonably well, that they should be able to be making pitches. And he found that they just couldn't bring themselves to do it. You know, they couldn't have that conversation with a customer. 
And so when he came back and thought about the types of coaching and training that he was going to do, he broke it down into two categories. So one of the things that he did is he helped the salespeople feel like they were experts in this rapidly changing market. And so he organized a whole series of seminars and training sessions around, this is how the digital market's training. This is how we fit into the market. This is what you can expect to happen in the future. Now you can be a thought leader for your customer. So that was one side of the training that he gave. The other side, and perhaps the more important side, was to help the rep manage their own emotions around the sale. And so he asked them to start journaling. One of the questions he asked was, what's your role in the sale and what isn't your role in the sale? And essentially what he was doing is helping the salespeople come to the conclusion on their own that they were enough of an expert that they could go in and have the right conversations with the customer. And so that gets down to doing some coaching and some thoughtful interventions to making the monster smaller, making the problem smaller. So a salesperson can go out and have those types of conversations with the customers. I thought that was fascinating. You know, just how do you help your team come to grips with just how big the problem is and then make the problem smaller? Making the monster smaller. That's, that's really good, Tom. Any summary thoughts? You've talked about a lot of pieces that are here that distinguish those who are far more successful than average when it comes to selling new products and innovations. We've talked about mindset and training and the involvement of the R&D team and coaching. It sounds like if there's a connecting thread or two through all of this, it has to do with seeing the role of actually recognizing and leading change as inside and outside, as well as you were getting to kind of the X factor of confidence in the ability to lead a customer and yourself through some rapidly changing times. That's right. Yeah. You know, I should start by saying, I think it's a fascinating area to study. And as a salesperson, it's a really exciting place to work. You know, who wouldn't want to be part of something that's a positive change and and to make a positive difference in your customer's environments. But the flip side of that is anytime the change is involved, there's pain and there's growth that's required. And so from a management team, I think one of the things that doesn't get appreciated enough is that you're asking your salespeople to go out and be change agents at their customer site. We know that it's difficult to be a change agent within your own company. Now you're asking the salesperson, go be a change agent for somebody else's company. And that's a tough job. I think having some empathy for the salespeople around just how difficult of a job that is, is important. And developing then that tool set that can help them become an effective change agent for their customers is just critical. And there's many, many things that you can do as a company to help that salesperson be successful in this particular role. If you do it well, it's fantastic. It's a great place for the salesperson to work. It's an exciting place for you to be in. And from a company level perspective, senior management perspective, it's well worth the effort. We know that the returns are huge from getting it right. So it's in everybody's interest to make it work. He's Tom Steenberg, and he's a smart guy. (laughs) And he's the co-author with Michael Ahern, his most recent article for Harvard Business Review. I believe it's the November, December 2018 edition of that, How to Sell New Products. Tom, I, I know we've taken you from conferences and meetings and all sorts of things, but thank you for spending some time here on the Manager Message Podcast. Thanks, Jim. I really appreciate your having me on. 
Thanks for joining the Manage Your Message podcast. Please tap subscribe on your way out, and I would appreciate it if you would take just a moment to rate and review us. That helps other professionals like you join our conversation. Is there something important changing in your company or with your members? As we just learned, the most successful professionals take a different approach to change when it comes to developing, sharing, and reinforcing their messages. I'd be happy to talk with you about it. Maybe now is a good time to schedule me to visit and speak with your group so that everyone can ultimately be a message manager. You can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com. And my mobile number is on the website, jimcar.com. That's K-A-R-R-H. Until next time, message managers. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.